Okay, we will continue now with the study of the Sutta on the Noble Virtue. And I will devote some more time to going over material which I had gone over in the last class, because in the last class, which was held shortly before the election, no, it was after the election, it was after the election, but there were very few people. And so since some of this material is important, in order to keep, for those people who are attending regularly but didn't come for the last time, to keep the continuity, we should discuss this again. <laughs> also, <laughs> to confess that when I looked just now, I didn't have a chance this morning to look at the rest of the sutta. <laughs> and when I looked just now, I think there's very little left to the sutta. <laughs> so if I were to start with the remainder, I would quickly write out to, to come to the end of the sutta with nothing left to say. So let us make it interesting. <laughs> by going over some of the same material. Okay, so we finish at the point where we will stop. We'll, we come to the point, we'll start off with paragraph 19 of the Sutta. This is after the Buddha has attained enlightenment and realized Nibbana. Now he is faced with the problem, the question, whether he should go for in order to teach the Dhamma. And so he reflects to himself that this Dhamma, he says, this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, and so on, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise, by this, while this generation, that is humankind, delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. And now, with the next part of the sutta, the Buddha discloses what you might call the two aspects of his enlightenment. The first of these is dependent origination, or specific conditionality. The principle that phenomena arise independence on conditions. In the second part of the statement, he discloses the second aspect of his enlightenment, which is Nibbana. He calls it here the stilling of all conditioned formation, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, Nibbana. And so we could call these the two complementary principles of the Buddha's enlightenment. First, there is the first thing that he discovers is the principle of dependent origination. And through investigating dependent origination, he arrives at the ultimate, the realization of Nibbana. In fact, there's a short, there's a, a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya, in which the Buddha is instructing a certain troublesome monk, and he explains, first, there comes the knowledge of the nature of phenomena. This is called Dhamma Titinyana, the nature of, you could say, the structure or nature of phenomena. And afterwards, there comes the knowledge of Nibbana. So first, one begins by investigating phenomena, 
and seeing their conditioned nature, how phenomena arise in dependence on conditions. And by seeing the conditioned origination of phenomena, then one removes, you can say, the delusions of permanence, the idea that there's any kind of permanent, lasting, stable essence and phenomena. And by seeing the conditioned nature of phenomena, one also removes the idea that there is any kind of self standing behind our experience, any kind of permanent subject. And when this delusion of permanence, delusion of selfhood, is dissolved or eradicated, then there opens up the vision or insight into the ultimate reality, the unconditioned reality, which is Nibbana. And so this is the, let's say, the process of realization, the process of understanding, according to the Buddha's teaching. In order to realize the ultimate, the unconditioned, one has to proceed by penetrating the nature of the conditioned. I think this is one way in which the Buddha's approach differs from that of, say, Advaita Vedanta, non-dualistic strain of Vedanta, in which one doesn't really attempt directly to understand the nature of conditioned phenomena, but one begins with the hypothesis that the Atman, the Self, is the ultimate reality, the Brahman, and then at some point one comes to that realization of the non-duality, the identity of the Self with Brahman. But from the Buddha's standpoint, this procedure is based upon, you could say, a failure to penetrate to deeply understand the true nature of the condition, which comes by investigating, examining experience in its immediacy, to see how things arise through conditions and disappear with the cessation of their conditions. Then when one thoroughly understands the conditioned phenomena as Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, impermanent, suffering, non-self, then there comes, at a certain point, the realization of Nibbana as being not impermanent, but stable, permanent, lasting. As being not suffering, but being true happiness, the Paramasukha supreme bliss and Nibbana as being <laughs> here there's a little difference we don't say that when one penetrates non-self one realizes Nibbana as true self because Nibbana also remains non-self but I think the text uses the expression by penetrating the emptiness of conditioned phenomena then one realizes Nibbana as Paramasunyata, the ultimate emptiness, the supreme emptiness. <laughs> and I think 
from the way the Buddha expresses his realization at this point, we might infer that at this stage in his teaching career, at this stage in his Buddhahood, in his post-enlightenment experience, I would say that he had not yet even conceptually formulated the Four Noble Truths yet. So when his enlightenment is described, it's explained as though he were actually realizing the Four Noble Truths. But in fact, I think the Four Noble Truths came later when he was trying to figure out or devise a way to express his enlightenment, to convey his enlightenment in practical terms so that it would lead others to seek that experience of enlightenment or to seek the attainment of Nibbana. I would understand the enlightenment experience itself to be in its essence the direct realization of Nibbana which is beyond all conceptual expressions, all conceptual formulations. But when the Buddha is seeking how to lead others to the attainment of the quest for Nibbana, then he has to begin with certain facts of concrete human experience. And so naturally, he begins with the experience of suffering. Then he wants to show, since Nibbana is the destruction of craving, then he will show how craving, the tanha, is the cause of suffering. And then Nibbana becomes the cessation of suffering, and then the Noble Eightfold Path becomes the way to the cessation of suffering. But here, now the Buddha is reflecting and thinking to himself that it will be too difficult to reveal these profound principles that he's discovered to the world. He thinks it would be, he'll just have to spend all of his time trying to teach others, to transform others, and people will not be attracted to his teaching, (laughs) would not want to listen to him, and so he would just spend his whole life in a futile endeavor. Therefore, the Buddha's first inclination, the first inclination of his mind, is not to teach others, but just to remain living silently in the forest. So therefore he expresses this thought in these verses, saying it's enough with teaching this Dhamma that even I found hard to reach. You will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. Okay, so when he reflected in this way, then his mind inclined to what's called inaction, non-exertion in teaching the Dhamma. But just at that moment when his mind, when those thoughts arose in his mind, then Brahma Sahampati, who is considered the, call him the 
chief ruler, the secular ruler of the cosmos, of this world system. When the Buddha was thinking these thoughts, Brahma Sahampati must have been aware of these thoughts taking place in the Buddha's mind. Or else perhaps we could even see Brahma Sahampati as just a sort of symbolic figure representing the particular, maybe this we call it the voice of conscience, the Buddha's voice of conscience, or maybe a deep urge coming from his previous aspirations and vows when he was a bodhisattva striving for supreme enlightenment in order to benefit the whole world of the Dhamma. And perhaps Brahma Sahapati can be taken, maybe it could be interpreted at different levels. At one realistic level, he is a supreme deity of this world system. Not the creator deity, not a creator god, but the secular ruler of the cosmos, who is also immersed in ignorance, in delusion, and needing the teaching of the Buddha in order to attain enlightenment. At another level, we could take Brahma Sahampati somewhat symbolically as a particular urge or deep principle within the Buddha's own mind impelling him to go forth to be the Dhamma. And so Brahma Sahampati now comes to the Buddha somewhat as the spokesman for the whole universe, the whole world system of ignorant sentient beings driven by their delusions through the round of rebirth in need of the message of the Dhamma. And Brahma Sahampati bows down before the Buddha and pleads with him to teach the Dhamma for the sake of all of these sentient beings. And he gives him the assurance that there are some beings with little dust in their eyes who will understand the Dhamma if it's taught and who will be able to awaken to its truth. Then he expresses his appeal in very beautiful verses. To save time, I won't read them again, but you should read them because they're really very stirring, very meaningful. Okay, when Brahma Sahampati has made this entreaty to the Buddha, then the Buddha now, he uses a very pregnant phrase, out of compassion for beings. He surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. At this point, we can say that the Buddha's great compassion has not yet been awakened or aroused, even though he has reached the enlightenment, but his enlightenment has brought him to the pinnacle transcendent to the pinnacle of existence, we can say, almost transcendent to samsara. All of this has been the work of prajna, wisdom, bringing him out of all bondage, all limitation, all suffering, to the boundless, to complete freedom and liberation. 
in order for the Buddha's passion to be awakened there has to come this petition or entreaty from the world itself from within the depths of samsara and it's Brahma Sahampati who presents that petition and by listening to it the Buddha looks out at the world of sentient beings and now there comes this descending movement of compassion which will bring him from this lofty pinnacle the top the mountain of Dhamma back down in the world in order to proclaim the Dhamma but first the Buddha surveys the world with his special vision or knowledge of a Buddha looking out upon the entire realm of worldly existence and seeing sentient beings some with little dust in their eyes some with much dust and so on he compares them to lotus flowers and some of them grow immersed in the water not rising above the water those are like the beings with so much dust in their eyes that they can never understand the teaching then there are some beings which are like lotus flowers growing, coming to the surface of the water but not yet rising above it these are the beings with a middle, middling amount of dust in their eyes who might be able to understand if they are given extensive teachings and if they practice very earnestly then there are some beings who are like lotus flowers that rise up above the surface of the water and they remain above the surface but the flower itself, the petals are all closed they need the light of the sun when the light of the sun strikes them then those flowers will open and they receive the sunlight and they exhibit their beauty these are like the beings who have very mature faculties with little dust in their eyes but without the teaching of the Dhamma the mind still remains closed, unable to open what they need to open is the teaching of the Dhamma by the Buddha and so when the Buddha saw these beings with little dust in their eyes who could open their open, they will awaken awaken their wisdom attaining enlightenment by listening to the Dhamma with no effort at all just to listen then especially out of compassion for those beings the Buddha decided to teach then he announced his intention to teach with these, this verse open for them are the doors to the deathless let those with ears now send forth their faith thinking it would be troublesome Brahma I did not speak the subtle and sublime Dhamma okay so when the Buddha made this promise to Brahma to teach the Dhamma then Brahma Sahampati was delighted and he paid homage to the Buddha and disappeared now the Buddha reflects to whom should I teach the Dhamma first 
First, he thinks to teach his two former teachers when he was striving for enlightenment, Alara Kalama and Uddhaka Ramaputra. But as he investigates, he finds out through his Buddha wisdom that both of them passed away very recently. Alara Kalama passed away seven a week ago and Uddhaka Ramaputta passed away just the previous day. As we discussed last time, I'm not sure about the historical authenticity of this. It can be taken almost as being a kind of symbolic, a kind of symbolic significance. That this is the passing away or the end of the old order, the order of the very wise, very developed spiritual teachers who are gathering large communities to themselves and training many disciples, but who had not yet discovered the true path to final emancipation, who are teaching dhammas or doctrines which were still limited, still tied up with samsaric existence. And now, in a way, this whole course of events seems to signify that now the new dispensation has become available, the dispensation of the Buddha. And so, if the Buddha were to teach these old teachers, they couldn't turn over a new leaf, accept his teaching, and start training disciples in the Buddha's dhamma. But rather, the Buddha has to begin from scratch with new pupils who have not yet become established in their own right as teachers. And now, when the Buddha was striving for enlightenment, he had these five ascetics who were waiting upon him and assisting him, hoping that he would achieve enlightenment first and then show them the way to deliverance. And so when the Buddha was seeking a group of pupils to communicate the Dhamma, his mind went to this group of five ascetics. And he realized that they were very helpful to him, and so out of gratitude to them, he decided to teach the doctrine first to them. And so he sets off to walk from Uruvela, the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, to go to Benares, to the Deer Park, where they are now living. And as he is walking along between Bodh Gaya and Sarnath, then, I'm sorry, between, as he is between, between Gaya and the site of the Bodhi tree, then he crosses, the, he crosses paths with an ascetic named Upaka, who was a follower of the Ajivakas. This was one of the rival ascetic groups, which existed in India even quite down to perhaps about the 10th century in India. And when the ascetic Upaka saw the Buddha walking with very serene manner, very bright complexion, he was deeply impressed by the whole manner, the whole appearance of the Buddha. And so he exchanged greetings with him, and then 
asked him, who is your teacher and what doctrine, whose doctrine are you following? Because he might have, he might have noticed that the Buddha was not an old man, but he was this time 35 years old and thought he certainly couldn't be a teacher in his own right, so he must be the disciple of some other elderly teacher. And so he asked the Buddha, who is your teacher? Under whom have you taken the life, taken up the life of asceticism? And what is the doctrine that you're following? Then the Buddha replied to this ascetic in verses. Perhaps the original reply was in prose, we don't know. But the way it has come down to give it some kind of elevated tone, it's been set in verse and very beautiful profound verses. In these verses the Buddha is indicating to the ascetic that he is not the disciple of anyone else but he is the discoverer of the Dhamma and in fact the first, the fully enlightened one, the first liberated one in the world. So he says, I am one who has transcended all a knower of all, unsullied, undefiled among all things, one who has renounced all, freed by the cessation of craving. Having known this all for myself, to whom should I point as a teacher? With this the Buddha makes it clear that he is a self enlightened one, self-awakened one, that he has discovered this truth all by himself without depending upon any outside teacher, any guide or any other guru or master. Then he makes this more explicit. The words sound, I have to say, very boastful, though it has to realize the Buddha, in order to convince others of his enlightenment, he has to declare that he is an enlightened one. He says, I have no teacher and one like me exists nowhere in all the world, even with its devas. Here the Buddha indicates that he's superior even to the devas. Because I have no patipugala, no person as my counterpart. He says, I am the Arahant in the world. Here the Buddha indicates at this point he is in fact the only Arahant in the world. That there's no other, no other predecessor or contemporary of his has as yet achieved Arahantship. I am the supreme teacher. I alone am the Samasambuddha, the fully enlightened one whose fires, the fires of lust and craving, are quenched and extinguished. I go now to the city of Kasi, Kasi is another name for Benares, to set in motion the wheel of Dhamma. In a world that has become blind, I go to beat the drum of the deathless. 
here he has indicated his purpose and if Upaka were bright enough, sharp enough, he could have joined the Buddha and gone along to Benares and become a beneficiary of the Dhamma. But Upaka, it seems, was something of a skeptic, and so he didn't, <laughs> he didn't catch the hint, but he made a reply to the Buddha which seems to express his skepticism. He says, by your claims, friends, you ought to be the universal victor. He used the expression anantajina. The exact meaning is a little obscure, but it might have been a, a title that the followers of the Ajivakas used to designate a supremely liberated one. And then the Buddha said, the victors are those like me who have won to the destruction of the asavas, the pain. I have vanquished all evil states, therefore I am a jina, a victor. And the word jina was also the title that the followers of the Jains used for their teacher. The Jains are so-called because they're the followers of Bina, which means the victorious one. Okay, so even though the Buddha announced this, this ascetic upaka, instead of expressing faith in the Buddha, gaining faith in the Buddha, he just shook his head a little skeptically and said, it may be so, friend. Then he took another road and departed. And as I explained last time, this encounter had a somewhat happy ending since eventually, after a somewhat difficult life, Upaka found his way back to the Buddha and became a Buddhist monk and achieved, I think he achieved anagamiship under the Buddha and then eventually in the next life achieved arhatship. Okay, that's the point where we broke off last time. Now we can pick up and continue. Okay, as the Buddha is wandering stage by stage, Eventually, after I think this is a week or so, he comes to Benares and comes to the Deer Park at the Sipatna. And as he is approaching, the five ascetics are staying in the Deer Park and they see him drawing close closer. And when they look up and see one of them sees the ascetic Gautama comes and they realize that this is their former leader coming. And they criticize him as one who is living in luxury. They think he's given up the ascetic life and taken to a life of luxury. And so they now make a pact among themselves, an agreement. They decide that when he comes close, comes into the midst, they would not show him the respect ordinarily due to a teacher. Previously, when they were his followers, they would show him special respect. They would take his bowl and robe, they would rise up for him, offer him a seat, present him with water. Since this was the ordinary, these were the obligations that a disciple ordinarily had to show to a teacher. But now they want to show that they have 
stop considering him their master. And so they agree not to show him any of this respect, but if he comes to join them, then they can prepare a seat for him and invite him to take a seat, but they shouldn't go to any difficulties, any trouble for him. Now, as the Buddha approached, the five ascetics found that they could not keep their agreement. I think this is the way I picture it to myself. As he's drawing closer, something in his manner must have impressed all of them deeply. He, he must have been radiating that deep peace of an enlightened one, the truth vibrations of holiness that would have come through his full enlightenment and those vibrations that aura of peace complete contentment must have just floored them and struck them shaken they even shaken their body it was so powerful but they had made this agreement and even though they might have telling themselves we won't get up to to meet him, we won't go out to meet him, we won't prepare a seat for him, we won't take his bowl and robe, but still they couldn't keep that agreement. But they just were compelled by his majestic and overwhelming presence to break their agreement, break their promises, and show him all the respects due to the teacher. However, when they spoke to him, when they addressed him, they used the word abuso, which is a friendly greeting, a friendly expression used generally amongst equals or even by, in, by superiors to inferiors, by teachers to their pupils. And when a teacher was to address a pupil, they should, I'm sorry, when a pupil was to address a teacher, they should use a special expression, bante, venerable sir, not the word abuso, which means friend. So when they use that word, the Buddha said, you should not address the Tathagata, the perfect one, by name and call him friend. They must have called him Abuso Gotama, friend Gotama. For the Tathagata is an accomplished one, an Arahant, a fully enlightened one, a Samasambuddha. Then the Buddha says, listen, monks, the deathless has been attained. I shall teach the Dhamma. And if you practice as you're instructed, then you will soon realize the supreme goal. But when the Buddha said this, then these five ascetics said, even when you're observing extreme austere practices, when you are mortifying yourself, you couldn't reach any state of enlightenment, any superior attainment. So how is it now? You gave up the training, you started eating delicious meals, you've become quite plump. 
well built and we have been continuing our ascetic practices we are very thin emaciated and yet we have not yet reached enlightenment so how is it that you could reach enlightenment by living a life of luxury when they raised this objection the Buddha said that he had not given up striving not reverted to a life of luxury but in effect he's saying that he's found a new way to enlightenment and if they will listen he will teach them but even though the Buddha gives this explanation the five ascetics remain firm in their decision not to respect the Buddha as teacher and twice they present their objections till the Buddha decides that he has to use a different strategy you can say now he says to them he says monks did you ever know me to speak like this before did I ever previously claim to be enlightened and they must have had complete trust in his integrity and his honesty and sincerity and for that reason their doubts dissolve and they said to him now the wording is very significant now they don't say they don't use the expression abuso gotama but they say no bhante no venerable sir and by changing from friend gotama to venerable sir to bhante that means that their mind has been transformed and that they've now come to accept the Buddha as teaching so now the Buddha again announces his capacity as a teacher and starts to teach the monks as, we, as you know at this point the Buddha gave the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana Sutta the first sermon and at the end of that first sermon the monk venerable Kandanyo reached the first stage of enlightenment stream entry and professed his faith in the Buddha as the teacher but this account here gives a very compressed account that the Buddha gave instruction to the monks at different times sometimes he would teach two, sometimes three this actually covers a period of about two weeks from the first sermon through the discourse on non-self the Anatta Lakana Sutta until at the end of the Sutta on non-self all five of the monks had become Arahants so that's why the text says that the monks of the group of five themselves being subject to birth attain the unborn supreme security from bondage nibbana and the text continues till they realize that they have reached the final goal that they have become liberated from all conditioned existence okay that is the end of the narrative part of the sutta where the buddha if you remember the original setting the buddha has been speaking to a group of monks in this hermitage to which he has been led by venerable ananda and he to that group of monks the Buddha gives an account 
of his own quest for enlightenment. And at this point, the Buddha concludes that story. And now we come back to the setting, the original setting, where the Buddha is together with the group, not of the five monks, but of this monk, this group of monks to which he has been led by Venerable Ananda. And the rest of the discourse is given to those five monks, to those, that group, of, that large group of monks. And now the Buddha gives some advice which is pertinent to the religious life. This is concerning the five chords of sensual pleasure, that is form, sound, smells, taste, tactile objects in the mind which are pleasant and agreeable. Actually, I think this passage here, it's really self-explanatory. I think that there's no need for me to discuss this passage <laughs> unless somebody else wants to. Perhaps if there are any questions or any comments on what has been covered so far in the sutta. Any questions, comments, matters for discussion? Dutangas mean things like, yeah, literally, but it's making resolution, vow, people take only food gained by pindapata, by alms round, not accepting offerings of meals, taking only food only once a day, not taking food morning and evening, um, sleeping under the living under the foot, sleeping at, under the foot of a tree, not sleeping under a roof. And the most using only robes that have been made by sewing together pieces of discarded cloth, not accepting ready-made robes. And the most austere practice is living in a cemetery and sitting sleeping in the sitting posture rather than lying down to sleep. And there are still some monks who practice that. Even all their monks, like, like the great Webu Soyador of Burma, he practiced the sitter's practice all his life. And even more recently, Tumpulu Soyador practiced the sitting practice. And what is the reason for this practice? I mean, what is what, what it is? The reason for it. Oh, what is it described? It's undertaken in order to develop the qualities of contentment with whatever one gets, to become easy to support so one doesn't depend upon many things, luxuri fairly luxurious items, um, to develop equanimity. For example, if one makes the vow to accept only food gathered on alms round, if people are not expecting one, then one doesn't go prepared food but people will just give the leftovers from their morning meal and one has to be content with that. And say living under the foot of a tree so that one doesn't have to be bothered taking care of a cottage or room. One can just be very happy living out outdoors. And the, the sitters practice that is really undertaken by those who are making a very determined effort in meditation in order to keep the mind very clear and alert so that it doesn't become dull and drowsy through lying down to sleep. Okay, I think maybe we should, unless there's any further questions, then we'll stop for this evening.